Now we get to begin our uh, postprandial uh, afternoon nap, I mean uh, lecture. This is one of the chief complaint versions of, of lectures in FCP. So we're going to focus on a common chief complaint. What are some things to think about uh, as you work that up? So we're going to do today is focus on what is fever and how is fever different than hyperthermia. We're talking about the basic approach to somebody who says they've got a fever, and specifically. Uh, the differential workup of somebody who has a fever without an obvious source, okay, where maybe the fever is really the chief complaint. There's really nothing particularly else going on as far as the patient can tell. And so what do you do for those kind of patients? And it's a very specific workup, a specific differential, so we'll talk about that. We are not fish. We are not lizards. Although we may feel like it on a Saturday afternoon, we are not lizards. We do have uh, the ability to regulate our own body temperature, which has wonderful advantages. We are not tied to a hot rock somewhere in the sun. We can actually go out and do other things and, and be other things. Um, but we also uh, can generate fevers, which actually is a good thing for the most part. We can, it is um, it's an adaptive mechanism that allows us to actually uh, improve our infection-fighting abilities. I want to spend a little bit of time on this slide talking a little bit about heat transfer, uh, talking a little bit about physics. So I think it's important to understand, and not just related to uh, fever, but also related to hyperthermia, also related to heat illnesses, and talk about some of the mechanisms involved. The body is a wonderful thing. We have lots of ways to generate heat. Uh, mostly it's our, our muscle mass. And our muscle mass, are, are that physiology that the, the, the biochemistry, things that go on um, through phosphorylation, through the, the mechanisms in the cells, generate a lot of heat as a byproduct. That's a good thing. That's how that separates us from, from the fish, from the lizard. Unfortunately, if we didn't lose any of that heat, we would get too much of it. We generate much more heat than we possibly need. So we need to lose heat as well. And we lose heat through a number of different mechanisms. There's four basic mechanisms we lose heat from. First of all, just radiation, simply infrared IR radiation just leaving the skin. Okay? We put on clothes and we cover up the skin, it reduces the amount of IR radiation. It's not a real big factor in heat loss, but it's there. Then there's conduction. Conduction is the transfer of heat between two objects of the same phase, so two, two pieces of matter of the same phase, so from a solid to a solid, liquid to liquid, you know, whatever, gas to gas. So conduction, in this case, is our own solid body directly transferring heat to another solid object. Okay? When you cuddle up under the sheets with your honey, that's you're doing conduction, okay? You're giving heat. That's a good thing. Feels good. It's really important in the area of hypothermia, when you lose losing too much heat. If you lie down on cold ground on frozen snow, okay, you are going to lose heat very rapidly through conduction. So getting too cold very quickly is very possible with conduction. In terms of actually controlling 
um, and, and making sure you have enough heat loss, it's not a big factor. You won't have a lot of space that we're connected with another solid object. Okay. However, um, conve uh, that's conduction. Convection. Convection is the movement of heat from a solid uh, from one phase to another phase of matter. So from solid body to gas, the air around us, or liquid if we're immersed in water. Very efficient, okay? We lose a lot more uh, heat that way. So that is going on all the time. Very commonly, we're losing heat through convection. We're giving heat up from our bodies into the, into the air, into the air around us. And that's great as long as it's 72 degrees inside and we're, everything's fine. 70 feels great. 85 feels really great. 90's okay. It's getting a little uncomfortable. 100 doesn't feel good at all. Why is 100 degrees doesn't feel good? Because we've lost convection now. Because now the, the air around us is the same temperature as our body. And it needs a gradient. That heat needs a gradient to travel down. So without that gradient, that feels uncomfortable. So that, then that leaves evaporation as the only mechanism that will work at that high temperature. And so we sweat. And sweating is a critical means of losing heat and the most efficient mechanism <coughs> of losing heat. The most efficient mechanism of losing heat uh, is evaporation. Sweating, liberating water from the surface of the skin, we can lose a lot of heat very quickly. So that's heat, about heat transfer. So getting back to temperature regulation, the anterior hypothalamus is our thermostat. It takes information in from central sensors, such as the hypothalamus, peripheral sensors in the skin and other and, and muscle tissues, and, and based on that, it regulates our temperature. It tries to keep homeostasis, homeothermia. We try to keep the same temperature. If we're too cold, it allows more heat to generate. If we're too warm, um, it evaporates by, by sweating, that kind of thing. Or there's behavioral changes as well. So the difference between fever and hyperthermia, hyperthermia is elevated body temperature. It's where those mechanisms of heat control aren't working and your body temperature goes up. In a fever, your body temperature goes up, but we are intending to do it. Your hypothalamus is saying, no, I'm turning up the thermostat. I'm making this body hotter on purpose. Again, it's supposed to be an adaptive mechanism because it's supposed to either inhibit bacterial growth or increase the efficiency of some of our enzymes, but for whatever reason, sometimes it gets a little bit out of control and becomes less adaptive. But a fever is where we're, it's a prostaglandin-mediated um, effect of inflammation where you turn up the thermostat. Hyperthermia is inadequate heat loss or excessive heat production. And some examples of diseases where that occurs is malignant hyperthermia, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is kind of similar, and thyroid storm. Thyroid storm is where you've got really, really bad hyperthyroidism. Hyper You're generating massive amounts of heat, much more so than you can relieve by conduction or convection or, or, or evaporation. And one way you can tell the difference is it's not going to respond to antipyretics. Hyperthermia usually would not respond to antipyretics. Why? Because antipyretics work by inhibiting prostaglandins, inhibiting cyclooxygenase. Fever is a prostaglandin-mediated effect. Hyperthermia is not. Okay, so hyperthermia doesn't care if you're taking aspirin or not or taking, taking acetaminophen. It's going to keep going. Fever will usually respond to it.
This is your brain. This is your hypothalamus. Great. Cool. All right. Um, Neuroanatomy is another class. Thanks. Uh, okay, so your hypothalamus set point is um, raised by pyrogens. So um, stuff is released in the, in the body. And in response to that, the hypothalamus changes the um, set point. You do things like vasoconstriction, okay? Pulling back blood from the extremities, reducing the opportunity for convection. You shiver, you increase your heat production. Behavioral changes. When you have a fever, you want to put a blanket on, okay? You feel, you feel cold, you want to put a blanket on. You're actually generating heat, you're actually keeping heat in. You're, you're reducing your heat loss of it by infrared mechanisms by putting a blanket around you, so you're, you're increasing heat. So there's behavioral changes you're going to go through that actually contribute to elevating that body temperature. These are some of the mechanisms involved in, in fever production. Uh, if you, response to infection, response in, to mediators of inflammation, you're going to re get releases of certain pyrogenic cytokines. Okay? They float around the body, they go to the hypothalamus, hypothalamus says, okay, let's do it, and we turn it up. Okay. Enough physiology. What is a normal temperature? Okay, there's like these really like cool ranges and, you know, taking a lot of like averages across the entire population and you make this bell curve and stuff and you get these numbers. And they're all just a little bit slightly different and stuff. And one of the important take-home point of this slide is one is at the extremes of age, the very, very young and the very, very old don't have a very good immune system. They don't have very good physiology. They don't have very many adaptive mechanisms. Their adaptive mechanisms don't respond as well. If you're trying to increase heat, say by vasoconstriction, and you're old, and your blood vessels just don't work that well anymore, okay? So if you're, or if you're young, and, and, and you know, if you're a little baby, and you're trying to generate prostaglandins because in response to a bacterial threat, and you don't have them, your, your, your immune response just doesn't respond, you're not going to generate a fever. So you're going to have a decreased immune response at each extreme of age, the very young and the very old. So you may see all the signs, all the symptoms of someone with a febrile illness but actually not having a real fever, or the fever may be less. Also, you may see hypothermia, hypothermia, low temperature, in response to these uh, inflammation at the extremes of age. Bottom line is 37 is normal degrees Celsius. Greater than 38, not normal. Less than 35, not normal. A lot of range to that. There's a lot of exceptions, but that's your basic one. Does the numbers remember? How do you measure temperature? How do you decide someone actually has a fever? A lot of different ways to do it. Oral, you're probably all familiar with, um, very accurate way of measuring te uh, temperature. Takes some time to do it. Um, it's a little, you have to hold that thing under your tongue for the longest time, and you get really annoyed, and you just want to like chew on it. Don't. Um, but it's very accurate. Tympanic membrane. You can actually shoot a little beam, measure the infrared um, radiation coming off of the tympanic membrane inside the ear. You get a sense of the core temperature because it's inside the body works very well in experienced hands. Okay, you, the studies are very clear that the accuracy of, that, of, that, of those little readers, those little readers, they definitely go down um, depending on, on uh, if someone's used it a lot or not. So ICU nurses, 
Uh, nurses and working in triage do a lot of them. These are very accurate measurements. Those are very reliable numbers. For home use, if someone has never used one of them before, they're pretty much random number generators. Okay, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so they can be accurate in the right hands. Rectal temperature, very accurate, not very pleasant to do. Core probe, actually having some sort of core probe actually in the body, like the bladder or in the stomach, very accurate temperature. You know exactly what the core temperature really is, and you can get moment-to-moment -moment variations on it, uh, but that's obviously very invasive. You can't just run around sticking probes in people's bladders all the time. That's, you get arrested or something. So, The bottom line here is, if the, if the presence of a fever is going to change your management, if you're thinking, well, that kid, he's, he's, he's kind of young, he's, he's less than a month old, and he's got a fever, I'm really, really going to get worried, then you need to get a rectal temperature, you need to get a core temperature. It's really important. Okay. Ah, yeah, that guy's got uh, neutropenia, neutropenia. He's got less than 500... Um, nucleated cells, you know, really immune compromised. If you had a fever, I'd totally change, I'd totally admit them, I'd totally start antibiotics. Okay, you need to get a rectal temperature in that case. Okay, so if you, the temperature is really going to make a difference in what you do, you need to get a core temperature. Otherwise, it's okay to rely on those, on those, those stepanic readers, which is pretty much your, what you're going to get usual off the triage sheet, off of your clinic sheet, that kind of thing. Okay. Okay, fever is usually encountered as along with some other chief complaint. People usually come in and they say, I've got a fever and a cough, or I've got a fever and sore throat, or I've got a fever and a headache, that kind of thing, okay? Usually not alone. If it's the fever is the only complaint, you really don't have anything else, then um, you need to ask about localizing signs. You need to start to narrow down. So you're trying to figure out what organ system you guys need to think about. So the goal is to ask about localizing signs. When you're asking about their HPI, they say, I've got a fever, and then you listen to their illness, the history, the history the story of their, of their disease, listen for uh, places, um, listen for, for localizing signs. Think about cough, think about arthritis, abdominal pain. Try to narrow it down to, to an organ system. Okay, review of systems. Do you ever feel silly doing review systems? It's okay. It's okay to feel silly doing review systems. It's kind of dumb sometimes. I totally admit it. Okay? They're not going to take away my, like, you know, doctor card for saying that. But, <laughs> but, there's two really good reasons to do it. Okay? One is, first of all, you have to. Because it's, um, because for billing purposes, we actually are required to report a certain number of review systems. We have to demonstrate that we ask about a certain number of systems. Okay? So if you want to get paid, you pretty much have to ask. So yes, you're going to have to ask. Okay, but this is an example. This is an example where the review of systems really does help. Someone comes in, they say, I've got a fever. Well, do you have anything else? I mean, do you have a, do you have a cough? No. Well, do you have any diarrhea? Well, no. And you go through the entire review of systems, and you finally get to arthritis. He goes, yeah, my knuckles are like big and red and beefy, and they're awful, and I've got... Our, you know, monarticular arthritis and like this joint and I had it last week too and that kind of thing. And you're not going to pick that up unless you've gone through the entire review of systems and it's really critical and you're making your differential. Okay? So this is where an example where review of systems really helps. Um, 
Past medical history. Asking about the fever, obviously you want to worry about recurrences. Is this a cyclical fever? Is this a kind of fever that comes, comes up uh, before? And this is one of my favorite questions. What does the patient think it is? Because a lot of times, I'm like just clueless. I'm like, what is this going on? This thing is all over the place. He's talking about his teeth itches, and he's got a rash, and what the hell? <laughs> so I just ask the patient, well, what do you think is going on? Of course, the patient's going, dude, I'm the, you're the doctor. I'm the one paying, paying all the money for you. To, you decide. You're all the, you know, you went through, through all the medical school. You sat in that lecture hall and listened to those guys blab for all of your M2 year. No, so you should know, right? But, but no, just having an idea of what the patient's insight into the disease can really help. Oh, uh, I don't know. It, it kind of feels like the kidney infection I had last year. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, I guess that's, that's what it is. All right. Well, <laughs> here's my bill. All right. Um, <laughs> And again, if you don't have any ideas, when you get into the physical exam, you should have an idea from the history at that point what you need to be focusing on, what organ systems you're thinking about, where the localizing sign might be. Um, and if you don't, either way, you really need to focus on the organs that, organ systems that really most commonly cause fever, that are most commonly associated with infections. Lung is the big one, pneumonia, okay? Um, urinary, another really big one, especially in the very old and the very young. It tends to be occult, occult, meaning it's not really obvious they have a urine infection. Um, women of childbearing age, young, healthy women, they can tell you when they've got a, a urine infection. They, they, they know, but uh, an older person who's in a nursing home who can't talk can't tell you that. So focus on those systems during the physical. CNS, uh, central nervous system, brain. Not a real common place for a fever to occur, but boy, you really want to catch it when it does because it can be really bad. And GI, liver. GI, obviously appendicitis, um, colitis, diverticulitis, um, lots of things can go on in the colon, infectious colitis, diarrhea, infectious diarrhea, and liver disease, hepatitis, cholecystitis, okay, gallbladder disease. So a couple of different um, things could go on in the liver that may not be immediately obvious to the patient, um, but when you get to the physical exam, you pick it up. The differential diagnosis for fever is ridiculously huge. I'm not going to list it here. This is a diagram. Remember, it's a diagram. Quickly, no. This is a diagram demonstrating a portion of the possible diagnoses that are associated with fever. Uh, all the ones on this side are ones that are associated with fever without actually having an infection, so tied to inflammation, like from uh, rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. Um, and this side is all the different organs that can be infected and cause a fever. And that's only a fraction of them. So it's really dumb to talk, go through the entire list of what can cause a fever. So we try to narrow it down a little bit. If you've got a localizing sign, great, you're golden, go for it. If you don't, this is not the same as a fever of unknown origin. Okay? And this is an important concept. Uh, you will hear this definition. If you haven't heard it already, you'll hear it a lot next year, especially on internal medicine. An FUO, or fever of unknown origin, is a, um, is a prolonged febrile illness without an established etiology despite intensive evaluation or diagnostic testing. That's the strict def definition. You may hear also definitions actually tied to a particular time course like three days in the hospital of diagnostic testing or two weeks is outpatient diagnostic testing. Don't worry about that. The point is, doing intensive testing, you've done a lot of tests and you've got a fever that persists, it's not going away, 
and you still don't know what it is. That's an FUO. It's a fever under an origin. It's a very different topic. We're not going to cover it here. It's a very specific topic. Um, most illnesses, if you have a fever illness, most time you, it's either going to be apparent what it is, or it's going to go away and it wasn't a big deal and forget about it by the time you figure it out, or you figure it out. So if it takes you that long to figure it out, usually it'll be obvious or um, it'll go away. And FUO is a little bit different. This is not, we're not talking about FEOs, we're talking about fever without localizing signs. So you've done your evaluation, you've done your history, you've done your physical, and the patient comes in and their chief complaint is, I've got a fever, and you're like, and? and she's like, that's it, I got a fever, nothing else. Okay, and you do your whole history, and you do your really careful review of systems, um, and Again, you don't have, there's no cough to tie it to. There's no diarrhea going on. There's no, no organ system to immediately tie it to. Okay, that's okay. If you get to that point, actually that's not too hard. That differential list is considerably more manageable. So not having any pain in a particular spot and you've got a fever, um, that's, that list is pretty, is pretty small. And here's, here they are. If it's acute... The fever just, just, just started, and the patient's in, from an industrialized country, usually going to be influenza, usually. If it's acute and they're from a non-industrialized country, think about malaria. In terms of just number-wise, that's going to be your most common ones. Other than that, um, especially for chronic fevers, fevers that have lasted more than a few days, maybe more than a few weeks, think about tuberculosis, think about Lyme disease, think about fungal infections especially histoplasmosis if you're talking about someone from the Midwest. Malignancy. Big one is lymphoma. This is how lymphoma presents. Basically, lymphoma presents in one of two ways. You either get a big lump in your neck somewhere or some you know, lymph node somewhere, and they, say, I, and they come in, I've got a big, big lump in my neck, or they come in and they say they've got a fever. They've got a fever for two weeks, and they're soaking the sheets at night, and they can't figure out what's going on, and they've lost eight pounds. That's, that's someone with lymphoma. Um, connective tissue disorders, this includes all the rheumatologic diseases, like lupus, okay, rheumatoid arthritis, sarcoid's a big one. You may just get a fever and not really have any clear localizing signs. They might have a history of arthritis, they might not, um, because th these systems, can, these diseases can cause inflammation Vasoprostaglandins in places other than the joints. I do want to uh, take one time out and talk uh, specifically about pediatrics. A lot of times when I, I give my talks, I focus on adult medicine because that's what I do a lot. I do want to mention a specific case for kids in dealing with fever without a localizing sign. There's a condition that we refer to as febrile illness of childhood. Okay. By the time you got into your age, you guys have seen a lot of viruses. You guys have seen a whole lot of viruses and a whole lot of bacteria. Your immune systems know it. They've seen it. They've done it. They've been, been there, done that. Okay? Little Sophie this morning, not so much. She's seeing a lot of these things for the first time. She's going to have an immune response. She's got to build up her immune memory. And in, since she's in daycare, she sees a lot of them. She's probably seen all of them, it feels like. And if you have kids, you know what I mean. Um, and so they, they, have to, they, they have to catch these things first. They have to have immune response and they, they get better. Most of the time, kids do just fine. 
They get a fever for a couple days, but they get better. They may have a cold. They may have cold symptoms. They may have nothing at all. Okay. So if you have it, if you're dealing with a child, and they come in for that fever with uh, localizing sign, they just have they just have a fever. You're going to look for an ear infection because that's kind of a cold. You wouldn't actually. Would, it's not immediately apparent when you're looking at a child unless you look inside their ear. Think about pneumonia. Fever, fast breathing, especially with a cough, that's pneumonia in a kid. You're not going to see it unless you get a chest x-ray. And urinary tract infection, especially for the younger kids. Okay? Pyelonephritis in a woman childbearing age, a 20-year-old, is very obvious. A pyelonephritis in a two-month-old is not obvious at all. It's not apparent. You only get a fever. That's the only thing you see. And what you do really depends upon the age of the, of the kid. If you're talking about a kid who's one month of old, they do not have, one month or less, they do not have an immune system to speak of, they're screwed, okay? You need to panic. It's time to put on the brown pants, okay? <laughs> they're getting made to the hospital, they're getting a, a lumbar puncture, they're getting urine, they're getting blood, they're getting antibiotics, you're calling a pediatrician, you're, you're calling your lawyer, I mean, everything, it's, it's bad, okay? <laughs> you don't want that. At some point, they're going to start getting their immunizations, okay, after the first month starting around two months or so, they start to get their immunizations. When those immunizations kick in, things get better. But there's a definitely a gray period, a gray zone between one month and, say, three months, where the immunizations really haven't kicked in yet. Maybe they've only gotten one dose. Maybe they've gotten zero doses. And they're kind of like that one-month-old. They really don't have an immune system. They get a fever. You need to do a lot of stuff. You need to do some investigation. You're definitely checking these kids for um, urine infections. You're definitely um, taking blood cultures, that kind of thing. Once they get older than that, four months or older, once they've had two doses of the pneumococcal vaccine, two doses of the pneumococcal vaccine or more, they're going to be just fine. Uh, through the vaccine, through um, the vaccine for Haemophilus influenzae, we pretty much eliminated that as a significant um, disease for kids. It still occurs in, in their ears, but does not occur in their brains. Doesn't occur, it does not occur in their epiglottis. They don't get osteomyelitis from it. Okay? We pretty much eliminated that disease because of the immunization. The same thing is now happening for pneumococcal, for the, for the pneumococcus. Um, much lower incidence of brain infections, of serious bacterial infections, SBI, serious bacterial infections in kids, thanks to these vaccines. Okay? So having those vaccines has really changed our management. Um, for kids of this age. So once you get a couple of those doses of vaccines in, kids going to be fine. You have a, I see eight months old, eight month old kids in the ER all the time with a fever. I examine them. I look for uh, localizing signs. I'm looking for rash. I'm looking for their ears. I'm looking at their throat. I'm listening to their lungs. I'm doing vaccines. I'm making sure they're hydrated. I'm making sure they can take fluids. And then I say they're going to be fine. I don't do a thing because they are. They've, they've all got got to be exposed to different viruses. They got to go through it, and they're going to get better. Dr. Woodhead's going to cover this a little bit more later on this semester when we talk about um, the, the ill child. Okay, back to fever without local science. So you, you've got your non-infant, and you've gone through your history. Um, you've gone through the, the chief complaint. It's just a fever. You can't find anything else. What do you do? Um, ask about the duration of symptoms. Okay, if you're talking about less than seven days. You're pretty much focused on infection. Don't need to worry too much about, about malignancy. 
Uh, careful head-to-toe review of systems. Okay, again, this is where the review system is asking to be useful. Make sure you ask about weight loss. That really changes your management here. Ask about immunosuppression, okay? Have they been on chemotherapy? This is probably a big, a big, um, a common uh, patient for, for me that comes in with that fever without a localizing sign. Adult comes in, they've got a fever, nothing else, just got a fever. That's it. I'm perfectly fine. Review system is completely negative. And I'm taking the past milk, and she goes, oh yeah, I had chemotherapy last week. Oh. And we check their blood count, and it turns out they have like no neutrophils. Okay? That's a neutropenic fever. That's a very specific workup, very specific treatment. They need antibiotics. They're gonna, you know, they can get in trouble that way. Travel history. You've got to ask travel history. If you don't ask about what they've been doing, you're not going to know. Maybe this person has never been outside of Iowa. Maybe the first they've ever traveled is like to Ames for the game. That's it. But um, maybe they've also been to Nigeria last summer um, doing a research project. Okay, that makes a big difference in terms of your workup. Um, if they've been camping recently, okay, they've been out in the woods, they've been bitten by ticks, they've been up to Wisconsin where it just is like Lyme disease heaven up there. It's like ridiculous. You thought like Lyme disease was like big in like Connecticut. No, apparently it's like Wisconsin's it. So if anyone from here from Wisconsin, would just you can leave your Lyme disease up there. Just don't bring it here, all right? Good Lord. I hope those ticks can't like swim across the Mississippi or something. Um, animal farm exposures, big deal, especially for our patients here in this state. There's a, zoonotic diseases, diseases that infect humans from animals, zoonotic disease. Um, a common issue, and it's a different di differential. Things to think, think about when you're talking to a patient who's got a fever. Um, Brucella is a, a perfect example. Just going to cause a fever. It's going to cause a chronic fever. You're not going to find any other signs, um, and you may not pick it up until you ask about that animal history. Finally, family history may be relevant in a few cases, certainly with connective tissue disease. And I got to mention it because it's kind of funny, and this is the end of that, you know, it's kind of a running joke. Um, when you look in the textbook and you look at the, at the differential for the fever, you're always going to find somewhere in the bottom familiar Mediterranean fever. And when you guys are like on the wards like next year, like doing your like rounds for medicine, and you're like, you know, you're trying to be like smart, you're like saying, oh, it could be a familiar Mediterranean fever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm just here to say, actually, the disease really does exist, and people actually do get it. Okay, so um, in fact, uh, I did my training in Los Angeles, and Cedar sinai in Los Angeles is, um, is an area town where there's a lot of Jewish, a lot of um, Russian immigrants, and they actually have a familiar Mediterranean fever, FMF to its friends, FMF clinic, patients coming in with this. And what it causes, causes cyclical um, abdominal pain and fever, like these, the acute attacks that are interspersed by weeks or months apart. So you got somebody who comes in, and he gets this abdominal pain and fever, abdominal pain but no tenors. You do an exam, you can't find any like appendicitis or anything. Um, and they've got a history of this repeatedly. And they're from Mediterranean region. Maybe they've got maybe Italian background, Spanish background. Maybe they're North African. Um, that's just something disease to think about. Okay. Now you can go ahead and laugh about it the rest of your life. But I just had to mention it. It really does exist, and I've actually seen people with it. Um, Fear without localizing sign. You go on the physical exam. If you don't have a clue where you're going, if you don't have a clue what ordering system you're going to be focusing on, you're probably, it's not really going to be helpful. Okay? Um, but some things you do want to look at, really important, lymphadenopathy is huge. Okay? I mentioned it when we talked about, when we reviewed the physical exam, and I mentioned it again, 
Um, if you don't check all lymph nodes, including axillary, you're not going to pick this up. And generalized lymphadenopathy and fever has a very short list. Um, it's about five or six, I can think of right now, that are really important diseases that are easy to identify. And that lymphadenopathy may be the only thing you pick up. Also, and that includes the spleen. When talking about lymph, when the lymph, when talking about the lymph, lymph exam, that includes feeling for the spleen tip. Um, for the rash, if they have a rash, characterizing the rash is important. Different rashes relate to different diseases. Uh, joint exam, um, and then general and rectal exams. Um, this is a big deal for, say, someone with neutropenic fever. Okay, um, you're not. You, maybe they have an abscess, uh, perirectal abscess. You're not going to know that unless you actually do the exam. So you can pick things up that you wouldn't have identified by doing that complete exam. I want to spend a little bit of time and talk about um, some of the diagnostic tests. If you don't have an idea of what's going on, you've gone through your, your history, you've done a very careful, you've done the best review of systems you've ever done in your life, and you actually had my voice ringing in your head the whole time you were doing it. And you've gotten on the physical, and you actually did the axillary exam, and you looked for lymph nodes, and you still can't find anything, and you still have a clue, it's appropriate to send the, the tests that are listed on the slide, okay? Just to kind of get your bases covered. But if you have an idea of where you're going with it, if you have an idea of what system might be involved, these tests are probably important, maybe to give you some more clues or to rule some things out. So I want to talk about each of them in, in, in particular. The CBC can be very helpful. Not the white count. Not how elevated is the white count. Okay, this is going to come up. I guarantee it's going to come up next year, and it's going to come up in the fourth year when you rotate through the ER. So I'm going to, you know, believe me now, hear me later. All right. I'm going to ask you at some point, so what do you want to, what, what tests do you want to say, get? And you're going to say, I want to get a CBC. And I'm going to say, why? And I say, oh, I want to get a white count to see if you've got an infection. No. <laughs> Don't say that. Please. That's not it. You're sitting there and you're talking to me about this person who's got a fever for the last seven days and you're not quite sure if he's got any localizing signs or not. Maybe he's got a rash and you want to get a white count to know if he's got an infection. Well, you, you're telling me he's got an infection. He's got a fever. He's got inflammation, okay? But you want to get some characteristics of it. Oh, okay, that's important. Like, if it's really, really high, like greater than 30,000, that's helpful. Leukemia does that. Not a, lot of thing, not a lot of other things do that. Um, it's really low. I mentioned the neutropenic patient. I'll mention it again. You got a neutrophil count, absolute neutrophil count less than 500, you're screwed. So that's important to know about. The differential is also useful. If you have a whole lot of eosinophils, then maybe you're dealing with a parasitic infection. Or maybe you're dealing with an allergic reaction. The allergic reaction can result in a fever too especially if someone's been in the hospital for a long period of time. And eosinophils are either allergy or they're parasites. Lymphocyte count, absolute neutrophil count, I mentioned absolute lymphocyte count. If someone has HIV, it ravages their lymphocytes. They lose lymphocytes, okay? Um, their absolute lymphocyte count may be less than 500. So someone who's got a low CD4 count, you can't, you're not going to tell a CD4 count from a routine CBC, but you can get, get an idea from looking at the differential. But the other information you get from the CBC really, is really helpful because there's other things on there other than the white, white count, like platelets, for example. And if you've got someone who's got low platelets and a fever, 
That's really important. That's pretty much one of those three diseases right up there, or two diseases. TTP, thrombocytic purpura. If you haven't, and you can't even say it, so how bad could it be, right? Um, if you haven't heard of that disease, you will, um, and you definitely want to know about it. It's bad. And hemolytic uremic syndrome. Um, it can occur in a multiple setting, in a multitude of settings, one of them being somebody who's had E. coli, hemorrhagic E. coli, 0157H7, okay, that generates the hemolytic uremic syndrome. You get um, a loss of platelets, you get elevation of your creatinine, um, and it can be a bad disease. You're not going to pick that up unless you do the, the CBC. So it's, you can get some, use some information on there. It's not to see if they've got, see what the white can is to see if they've got infection. It's to get some more characteristics of it. ESR, CRP. If you guys haven't covered this um, this week or, you're, or last week, you're going to cover it pretty soon in PATH. You're going to talk about some of the mediators. You talked a little bit about it last year, I'm sure, in, in, in Haas. What is CRP? What is a C-reactive protein? It's one of the mediators, right? It's one of the inflammatory mediators, one of the acute phase reactants. If you've got inflammation, if you've got some sort of, I don't know, say prostaglandins cruising around your bloodstream, you're going to have a C elevated C-reactive protein. It's a measure of acute inflammation. ESR, or erythrocyte sedimentation rate, is a measure of how many of these acute mediators you have in your bloodstream. If you have a whole lot of them, then the red cells, they, they settle slower. It becomes like more viscous. So you, it's a measure. So if you have a higher ESR, you've got a lot of acute phase reactants in your blood, in your plasma. CRP, I really don't find it very useful. It's a marker of inflammation. And you're dealing with somebody who's got a fever without a localizing sign. You've got someone with a fever some, who's got inflammation. They've got a fever. You know they've got a fever. And you want to get a test that's going to tell you if they have inflammation? Doesn't make any sense. ESR can be helpful, but only in a small set of situations. It really is when it's really high. So these markers are helpful when it's really, really high. And ESR, once it gets over 100, that's really high. I only see a few of those. Once it gets over 100, there's a pretty short list of diseases it could be. Endocarditis is one. Uh, osteomyelitis, or infection of the bone, bacterial infection of the bone, is another. Also, some cases of lymphoma, myeloma, and certain vasculitides can cause it. So it's going to narrow your differential list down quite a bit if you get an ESR that, that high. But in generally, not very, it's going to be not very helpful. Oh, sorry. For ESR, it's uh, teens, t 10, 8, 10, 12, something like that. A lot. Someone who's got a fever, usually it's going to be in the 40s. That's just, okay, that's like, that's an elevated ESR, but it's like, yawn, what's the big deal? Um, CRP, like normal, is like 0 0.3, 0 0.5, something like that. And you can get up to like 2 or 3 or 4, 5 or 6, occasionally up to like 8 or 9. That's pretty high for CRP. Liver enzymes. The only way you're going to diagnose hepatitis um, is by actually knowing what the liver enzymes are. So if you don't get that, if you don't see that elevated AST, ALT, um, then uh, you're not going to pick that up. So make sure you know, so that, that's one way to check it. And also it can be helpful uh, for people with gallbladder disease, also pancreatic diseases. Pancreatitis, for example, that can certainly cause a fever. Urinalysis. Common diseases occur commonly. 
the number one cause of a fever in nursing home patients is a, is a UTI. It's also one of the more common causes of altered male status in nursing home patients. You have someone come in for the nursing home, they're altered, check their urine. Very helpful. But you can identify other things as well, not just jaundice urinary tract infections. Um, if you've got a lot of um, if you've got a lot of red cells, uh, if you've got a lot of uh, markers of inflammation in your urine, it may be an indication of vasculitis. Uh, if you want to pick up glomerular nephritis, you're going to have to do a, 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 a urinalysis. Um, certain drug fevers are going to be apparent, more apparent with UAs as well. Chest X-ray. Of course, you're looking for pneumonia. And patients who are maybe immune compromised, maybe they're on chemo immunosuppressive drugs, maybe they have HIV, maybe they're very young or very old, they may not have much on their, on their chest x-ray. They may only have many symptoms of their pneumonia, and you really need to check it to be able to see it. Also, you're looking for other things like masses, like tuberculosis. Blood and urine cultures, you're probably going to do this, especially if you don't have a clue what's going on. Um, it's probably helpful. Blood cultures have a very low yield. I mean, they're helpful when they turn positive, but the percentage of, of cases where they turn positive is pretty rare. So don't rely on them, but certainly can be helpful if it's positive. And it's really the, can be the only way of diagnosing endocarditis, infection inside the heart. That's the only way you're going to pick it up, so you need to identify it that way. Treatment. Obviously, you're going to treat the underlying disease, whatever, whatever comes up. But in terms of treating the fever, yes, go ahead and treat the fever. That's okay to do. You identify the fever, they got a fever, great. Fevers are uncomfortable. So let's go ahead and give them something to block the, that prostaglandin. So let's go ahead and give them acetaminophen or NSAIDs, um, like ibuprofen. Obviously, you want to avoid aspirin in, in children with fever. Um, and make them feel, you know, feel more comfortable. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to treat the fever as the disease. And you don't want to get people focused on the level of fuel, especially if this is especially true for parents. So I was talking about that one-year-old kid who's had all their immunizations and they come in with a fever and you can't find any localizing signs. What you don't want to do is you don't want to get the parents all wrapped up in checking the fever every five minutes and like making sure they respond to the Tylenol and stuff. That's not helpful. Um, that's going to give them obsessed about it. You treat the fever to make the kid more comfortable and want to drink and want to take in fluids. So fever is not the same as hyperthermia. They're a little bit different. Fever is a prostaglandin-mediated effect from the hypothalamus. Hyperthermia is a breakdown of the body's heat loss mechanisms. You want to identify localizing signs when someone's got a chief complaint of fever, and a lot of ways to do that. This is, again, where the review systems may be helpful. And a patient who has fever without a localizing sign, that's a specific workup. Think about malignancy. Lymphoma is a big one for this one. Think about connective tissue disease like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, sarcoid, along with infection, which of course you're going to think about. Any questions? It's a lot of information I know. Yes? Good. So when is, um, so when, what fever is too high? Like what fever like is like dangerous fever? A um, couple things. And there's febrile seizures, which is, which is a, uh, another, con another condition. Um, you basically don't need to worry about the, the, the level of the fever. It's very rare for it to be really a dangerous fever. It can be if it gets over 104 degrees. I've been to get, when you get up to 105, 106 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 
41, 42 degrees uh, Celsius, that can be harmful. That can result in um, protein breakdown uh, and rhabdomyolysis and then eventually even uh, uh, you know, brain injury. Um, that you do want to cool the body. Then you want to treat them like they've got hyperthermia. What you need to enhance the cooling functions of the body. That doesn't happen with infections very often. When you're dealing with that, you will deal with that when you deal with hyperthermia. When you deal with neuroleptic malignant syndrome, when you deal with someone with heat, with heat stroke, okay, that's what happens. Now, febrile seizures are something else. Febrile seizures occur in children, usually young children between the ages of uh, one and four or something like that. Um, and they would directly relate to the rate of the change in temperature of the body. So because of certain diseases, certain viruses especially, that tend to cause a rapid onset of fever, if you get a rapid onset of fever, you can get a febrile seizure. It's very scary to go through if you're, if you're a, uh, a, a parent with one of these kids. Then you need to watch them to see if they get better. Okay? If they recover right away, that's a febrile seizure, and it's because of the rapid change in temperature, and it is not predictive of epilepsy. does not mean they're going to get epilepsy. It's okay. Actually, we don't treat them. We treat the underlying disease. If they have something that we can treat with antibiotics, we will. If we don't, we instruct the parents on how to use antipyretics to make the fit kid more comfortable. But the seizures itself, we don't treat. Unless the seizure is particularly prolonged or they don't recover and they, they, they continue to be altered, in that case, we need to think about meningitis as a cause because meningitis can cause fever and seizures. So telling the difference is a little bit hard, but febrile seizures, once you identify that it's a febrile seizure, that is not a harmful condition. All righty. Enjoy.